It's Thursday. Today is Thursday. I've brought you the greatest gift of all. Oh, yeah? Well, in that case... Entertain me! It's showtime. Make use of the help that God puts around you. We are not a glum lot. A promise is a promise. It's very simple. Just don't drink and go to meetings. Give time, time. Easy does it. I do it. Want to have self-esteem? Just do esteemable things. One day at a time. We carry the message, not the alcoholic. Don't quit before the miracle happens! Hey, we're the defective characters. Three guys sitting around talking about our own personal experience in recovery. Hey, I'm Mike. I'm Dennis. Game's here. The opinions are our own. We do not represent any particular organization, institution, or fellowship. Today, we have a special guest. T will be sharing her experience, strength, and hope with us. And this episode five of the Defective Characters podcast. Let's go. So today we're very lucky. I know James found us a speaker that he knows uh, personally, probably closer than uh, I don't want to say probably closer than Dennis and I. I say I hope he knows her closer than uh, Dennis and I. Uh, James, do you want to introduce? Yes, thank you, Mike. Uh, Mike is right in assuming that I know T closer than both of them because T happens to be my wife. Now, <laughs> I, I, uh, I first met T uh, a little over five years ago. I get my dates wrong all the time. She'll probably correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but I, I met T and I immediately liked her because she drank the way I drank. I remember the first morning I was at her house. It was about nine o'clock. She looked at me. We barely knew each other. And she asked me if it would be weird if we went to the store (laughs) to get a six pack. And I said, not at all. And that was the beginning of a a long relationship. Um, So we drank, drank together. I've watched her Uh, pick up her first white chip. I've watched her grow spiritually in this program and I've watched her help other alcoholics. And she is absolutely beautiful inside and out. And I I can't wait to hear her story again for the first time. So without further ado, I give my wife tea. Hi, my, (laughs) (laughs) hi, my name is T and I am an alcoholic. Hey T. Hey T. My, Hello. My sobriety date is June 2nd, 2017. Uh, that puts me a little bit over two years sober. I have a home group that is in uh, Celebration, Florida. I have a sponsor. I have my sponsors taking me through the steps. My sponsor has a sponsor and that sponsor has a sponsor. And I have a uh, basic understanding of the steps, which I do every day, uh, one day at a time. So I'm wonderfully blessed and just grateful to have this opportunity by the grace of God to carry um, a message of experience, strength, and hope. I'm not sure exactly what will come out, but I do hope that whatever it is um, will inspire somebody. You know, I remember uh, when I picked up my very first drink, when I had my very first alcoholic reaction, that would be at the age of 19. Um, you know, before that I had tasted wine and, and alcohol and I had, um, grown up in a very loving family. Um, I'm the middle child. 
and uh, a strict family focused on education and being involved in the community. Uh, my parents were originally from the Caribbean. And, you know, they had beyond educated us and informed us and loved us and, and did their very best to warn us or prepare us for the world and all of the dangers of the world, including alcohol and um, drugs and other substances, people, places, and things. And they did the very best job that they possibly could. But there was no way, um, I think, that anybody, let alone myself, um, besides God, knew that when I picked up the drink at the age of 19 and I had that first alcoholic reaction, uh, that it was going to be 26 years before I found myself again, which is about 26 years. Um, I walked into the rooms of AA at the age of 44. That makes me 46. Um, you know, I remember my first drink because I was at college. I was at a, a very good school, uh, depending on who you talk to. And I wanted to be a part of a group of people who were all drinking and having a good time. It was the end of my, I believe, freshman year um, of college. And I had this opportunity for the what I thought was the first time to be a part of their celebration because we were all celebrating a championship win in a sport, a sporting event. And uh, I remember one of my um, friends, my guy friends said, here, T, have a drink. And in my heart, I knew that this was going against my, what I had in place as my moral code. Uh, I was very much a, you know, stick by the rules kind of person. I still am. Um, but he, he offered that to me. I was underage. I mean, there were so many things that were so wrong with that first drink. And I remember a friend of mine across the room saying, no, no, not her, you know, don't, don't do it. Don't do it. And, um, the idea that I had a group of people chanting, do it, do it. And I felt like I would be a part of, I went ahead and took that drink. And um, I guess it would have been fun if um, I took that experience as an opportunity to just have fun with the group. But the minute the alcohol got into my system, I had an experience I had never experienced before. Um, you know, I immediately physically just felt the alcohol going through my body like an electric um, parade. And uh, I totally, completely shifted into a different perspective, persona, uh, state of mind. And within a period of probably about one to three minutes, I chugged three red Solo cups. And I say red Solo cups because I remember that it was red and it was a Solo cup brand. So as you can imagine, that is not normal um, by any means. And I remember my guy friends, some of them... Uh, watching me and thinking that was kind of crazy. And I think some of the others watched me thinking, oh, no. And um, oh, no, it was for the next 26 years. So I always drank out alcoholically. You know, I always drank for the feeling that alcohol gave me. I, I never drank um, to lighten up an atmosphere or, or to enjoy the taste of alcohol on my lips or in my belly or anything. I drank um, to get drunk from the very beginning. And there would be times in that period where I would drink, um, try to do some controlled drinking. 
And it might have worked for a little while, but it didn't last because once that alcoholic reaction was triggered in my body, um, I had no control. I was completely powerless over my ability to um, drink. You know, I over time, almost within the first, I would say, year. So I went home for the holidays uh, while I was at school and I didn't drink because my family was pretty strict. But when I would return to school, I always drank, binge drank. I changed my schedule so that it would be around my drinking so I could drink when my friends drank and I could drink on the weekend. And that's how college was. Now, I graduated from college. I went on to a professional school. I became a professional. I became a lawyer. Um, I went to another good school. And, you know, those three years of, of law school was similar, similar habits, similar behaviors, And, um, you know, my alcoholism progressed to the point or my alcoholic drinking progressed to the point that I started experiencing symptoms of alcoholism. So um, my ability to make decisions based on what was presented before me was distorted. So I had a difficult time coping with different things that most people would brush off. I became very sensitive and I just looked for reasons to drink, um, you know, during my three years in law school, probably around the age 25, when I was studying for the bar exam is the first time that I realized that I had potentially a problem drinking, but I didn't, I didn't know that's what that was. You know, I tried to stop to drink, stop drinking so I could take the exam and I was not able to, it took me about 30 days. I had a craving that I couldn't understand. You know, I really thought that willpower and, and my goal to, to become a professional and get a license would help me to be disciplined and, and it, it didn't, I did stop drinking. I did pass the bar. I did move to Florida and start practicing law, but that was probably the first moment in hindsight that I could say, I probably had an opportunity to step outside myself and and get some help for some untreated alcoholism and just realize that it was a disease and it was physically and mentally consuming me. But I just, I didn't know, you know, I didn't know. And I thought it was being weak and I wouldn't know until I walked into the rooms of a, that being weak was an opportunity to, to, to be empowered through the program. Um, The rest of my twenties, similar drinking, my thirties, really things started to deteriorate. I had some great jobs. I got a house, I got a car. I had felt that I had arrived and I had accomplished the um, financial goals that I wanted to make, but my life was just uh, not where I wanted to be. And inside my spirit, my body, my soul, everything was just um, imploding. I was starting to have a lot of depression, depression feelings. Um, some of my friends who I would hang out with didn't want to hang out with me so much. I started pre-committing the nights before um, with my script of what I would say and do to keep myself from acting inappropriately, whether it was uh, doing the Roger Rabbit in the middle of a bar with strangers that I didn't know, or if it was uh, drunk textiling, or if it was just putting myself and the people around me in very dangerous situations. By the end of my 30s, um, I had uh, been fired from my first job. I had decided to open my own practice on close to pennies. I remember when I was uh, terminated from that that job, I had been given some uh, some income so that I could 
uh, would ha- would help for me to live during that period of time, some income that I had earned, and and I had been very irresponsible with that income, and some of the jobs that I had planned <laughs> to um, uh, go ahead and apply for, and I believe there was maybe at least one offer that I was given that later, um, in the end, they went with somebody else. But during this period of time, if it wasn't enough to wake myself up, that my decisions were really taking me away from my ultimate goals. Um, I, you know, it was just the beginning of what was going to be probably the last decade of a period of time that was very dark for me. You know, I um, did all right in my own practice for a while. However, um, you know, I think for me as an alcoholic, I have always, once I started drinking, changed all of my goals to match my drinking. I changed my friends where I lived, um, you know, where uh, I was going to eat, where I was going to go out, how I was going to travel from one place to the next. Um, I lived on South Beach for a period of time, so I had a separate fund for transportation. I probably spent hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars um, just to support not only alcohol, but it became other things that would also be a gateway to go into that I would put into my body. Um, By the end of my 30s, my practice was not doing so well. It was very hard for me to look at myself in the mirror. It was very hard for me to really get out of bed. I was incredibly depressed. It was very hard for me to have conversations with my very, very loving and patient family. Um, It was hard for me to ask for help. And I would have days where I would turn my phone off and just hide, you know, but I couldn't hide from myself. And I remember one of my friends, I had said, you know, that's it. I'm done. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm done. I just let me meet somebody. We could have surrogate children together. I described the characteristics that I wanted. I said, you know, and that's, that's it. That's, that's what I got. I mean, there's really nothing left. I've already had the car. I've already had the money. I've already had all these things. So I've experienced everything. That's what I thought. And shortly thereafter, you know, it wouldn't be the first time that I remember, be careful what you ask for. I was introduced through a mutual friend to my then boyfriend, uh, who is now my husband. And uh, we just totally hit it off. He was the exact part of me that I was looking for. He was the free spirited side of me and I was the nerdy side of me. And I, I remember one of my first conversations with him was, you know, if you do what I say, we'll get along just fine. Because <laughs> it was all about me. It was all about just staying out of my way so that I could get what I want so that at the end of the day, I could get that drink, put whatever it was, substance into my body, um, get my life back. And I thought that everybody just was there to serve me in one way or the other. And at the end of the day, I truly do believe that God did put people in my life along the way to give me some red flags to tell me which direction to go. But because my mind was so distorted and my ability to read my moral compass was so off, it was very difficult for me to really receive that guidance um, from the Holy Spirit, from God, from my parents, from my family. When I heard them saying things that they said out of love to direct me on my end, all I could hear was, you're bad, you failed, you threw away a degree, 
you can never come back from this. And they weren't saying any of those things, but that's what alcohol does to me. That's what alcohol does in my mind. I was putting so many copious amounts of alcohol and things in my body that my mind and my thinking um, became entangled and twisted to the point that the best analogy I could think of is like a kite. You know, if I'm out there flying a kite in a tree and it gets tangled in the tree and I move one way to try to untangle the string and then I move the other way to untangle and the next thing you know, the, the kite is completely tangled and I don't want to cut it and let it go. And, you know, I'm fighting against an impossibility that I have no power over. And that's what was happening. Now, it was my choice to pick up that drink at the age of 19. It certainly was my choice um, each time that I drank. You know, what I didn't have power over was that first drink. I didn't have power over saying no, not today, alcohol. And uh, so alcohol became my king. That's what I worship. That's what I had my entire life built around. And by the end, when I was in um, pretty, pretty bad circumstances, all I lived for was that drink because I believed that the drink would make me feel better and then when I didn't feel good the next day, I would just drink some more. I remember one of my friends telling me in one of my dramatic crying conversations that I had with her about this is my life and look at what it's come to. Um, you know, she said, well, did you ever think about not drinking? And I was like, what do you mean? As I had a drink in my hand and um, <laughs> who knows what else I was doing. And, uh, she, and I said, I don't know. And she said, well, it's just that every time you call me crying, you're always drinking. And I thought about it for all of about maybe 30 seconds. And I said, oh, I think you're right. And then I hung up the phone and I felt happy. I thought the solution was to not drink. I probably went about a week, maybe even 30 days, because I thought the solution was just not to drink. But the solution was definitely not to drink. But I was powerless over staying sober and not picking up that drink again. I had nothing to keep me from wanting and craving that drink. Um, you know, after I met my then... Uh, boyfriend, my now husband, I remember in one of the places that we stayed together, he had a blue book on his shelf and I had recognized that it said Alcoholics Anonymous. I knew a little bit about the program because in my legal career, I had come across it and, and certainly had referred many clients uh, to it and many very good people. I never saw them again. And I often wondered why, and I probably know why, because I was out drinking and they were sober. So, of course, I probably would not have had an opportunity to find out how the program worked. But I remember asking my uh, then boyfriend, what, what, you know, what, how do you have that book? And he had mentioned his experience and um, didn't make a whole lot of sense. But I do remember that he said, well, you know, this morning, you know, you woke up and you had all these emails and these phone messages and you're stressed about this and where money is coming from. I mean, wouldn't it be great if you had uh, an employer that told you who to call, when to call, what to do, when to stop, not to worry, to, to feel safe and to let you know everything was going to be okay. And I looked at him with the biggest smile and I felt so relieved in that moment. And I thought, who's hiring? This practice isn't working. I need a job. And uh, he laughed. And he said, no, that's God. You know, God can direct you. You're just not hearing him. And I remember the, the peace that I felt in the moment that he described what I thought was an impossible relationship with a higher power that I would come to know was something that I felt again when I walked into the rooms of AA. And that was just enough of a seed that over the next five years and, and mostly the last two and a half, three years 
um, started to really grow. And people started appearing in my life that had a strength that I was attracted to. And, um, you know, by the end of that 26 years, my life had been in complete shambles. I was facing um, some disciplinary action from the organization that manages the licensing. And um, I have consequences that I had to deal from that, that uh, worked out by the very grace of God with a blessing. And that all happened once I entered the rooms and started the program uh, and started my, my journey in, in recovery. Um, you know, right before I walked into the rooms, and I don't remember all the dates, there were a couple of weeks and months there where uh, I really felt like this was the end for me. I was living in, you know, with my family. I was I was living with my then boyfriend. We got married actually March twelfth of two thousand seventeen, and um, then walked into the rooms June second, two thousand twelve seventeen. So he was really smart to hook me up <laughs> before we walked into the um, rooms, and 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 then the journey began. But um, you know, if it wasn't for him. I don't think that I would have been open to consider that there was another way of life. And I remember I was, we were living in a, a less than shady, probably less than shady um, motel. You know, I'd given up everything that I had owned, house, car, you know, things were in storage. We weren't going to ever see those things again. Um, and I remember with uh, the little dog that we have, I was, uh, drinking strawberita, smoking a cigarette, probably playing some some game on my app, and and I saw this beautiful, beautiful red cardinal, and I just remember sitting there on the curb at the end of the parking lot. There were no cars there. It was really very surreal, and just uh, prayed this prayer that I had never prayed before, uh, just letting this cardinal <laughs> that was just singing along, uh, completely unaware of me. Um, of all the things I had done where I had felt I had felt short and I just threw up my hands and I said listen you know I don't I don't like where I am and if this is all you have for me then you know just take me you know take me um, I remember I went to about four or five meetings and in all of those meetings one of them there was a young lady who told my story and I totally related to her and then I proceeded to raise my hand and give a share about 10 minutes long about my story and how I didn't know if I was an alcoholic or not. And I remember everybody saying, keep coming back. And I loved it. So I went to four or five other meetings where people would cheer for me to pick up the white chip and, and say, keep coming back. But I thought the program was a program of willpower. So I'd buy a calendar and X off all the days that I could stay sober. And that did not work. So eventually... Um, I realized everybody in the program who had good sobriety had a desire to stop drinking. And I was walking into those rooms with no desire to stop drinking. I wanted to keep drinking. And so I did an honest prayer um, to God. And I didn't know who I was talking to. And I asked for the will to have the will to have the will to want to have the will to want to have the will to have the desire to stop drinking because I didn't want to. And I just remember from there, there was a quick acceleration um, in the steps that I walked. And within a couple of weeks, it was one day leaving work. And my husband and I were leaving work on a Friday night, a job that hadn't paid us a full paycheck, heading back to the same motel 
um, wondering where that next night was coming from. And he asked if I wanted to go to a meeting. And I had remembered the night before. It was about 1230. So it would have been just turning June 2nd. And um, I had finished my last beer and my last cigarette at the exact same time, which was incredible. That was just a miracle. Also, the fall before that, the Chicago Cubs had won the World Series. So I don't know if those were coincidences, but I did think that it was pretty remarkable. And um, I didn't feel like I wanted to go get more cigarettes or more beer. I just went to sleep. And that Friday, we walked into the rooms. I walked into the rooms of A, and I picked up um, my chip. And that was the beginning of my recovery. And I cannot describe in words the release, the freedom, the peace um, the anguish, uh, all these things I felt at once, but I was just so happy that the fight was over. I had surrendered. Uh, I had given up. I had given up to win something that I didn't know what it was going to look like. I was scared, um, embarrassed. I was full of a lot of shame, but I knew um, that something was different. Something was very, very different. And I was very blessed to have my husband on the journey with me who had had a lot of experience. And God, it was not without humor because I get to test out all of my new tools from AA on my wonderful, free-spirited husband. And so my journey in AA did begin. I had a, I followed directions from the very beginning. My husband told me, go in the rooms, raise your hand, say you need a sponsor, get a book, get a sponsor and do what they tell you. Um, the first two weeks I had a sponsor, I had a book, I did not have a reliable car. I didn't have a reliable phone service. I was talking in Wi-Fi, sometimes walking distances to get Wi-Fi. And I remember almost being, um, fired. I was almost fired as a sponsee. <laughs> my, my sponsor, beautiful, beautiful woman, um, in the West Palm Beach area, which has amazing recovery, told me if I wasn't serious about this, that there are other people who were uh, sick and suffering that she could help. And I couldn't understand why she would say that, because couldn't she see the pain I had? Couldn't she see the problems? I didn't have a car. I didn't have a home. I didn't have a paycheck. I had all these problems. But all she was interested in doing was redirecting my focus and my thinking on following directions so that I could get this design for living that was going to save my life, that I could apply to any situation, anywhere, anytime to get me where God intended me to be and to be who the true person was that um, I know that I am supposed to be, which was more than just the drink. And um, I remember she, I think she Ubered me to that step or uh, to, to our book meeting that night. And I don't believe I missed another one. There's a lot of things from that point on, I, I didn't miss. I followed directions. Um, how much time do I have? <laughs> I kind of lost track. You should, you should be good. you have another about five minutes or so? Oh, okay, wonderful. So that was the beginning of my sobriety. So within also that same period of time, my sponsor was part of a sponsor family. So we would have, I believe, once a month, we would have meetings and at one at the first meeting that I went to the sponsor family's house, I, I thought I was in a sorority. I mean, everybody was so happy. There's probably 20 or so women th that were there, all different ages. Everyone looked different, but they're all happy. I could tell that some people uh, probably had a lot of things that were going on. But, you know, my my moral compass was so far off that I couldn't trust 
what I thought about people or where I thought I was. I just had to follow directions and I had to trust that this God that I was going to come to know of <laughs> wasn't going to put me in a dangerous situation. I had to trust this woman who was my sponsor, who was a complete stranger. And, and I, I picked her because she was sitting next to somebody who was wearing a cups hat. <laughs> so I don't know. That was a coincidence too, you know, good thing, bad thing, who knows. But um, anyway, at that meeting, they picked a theme that was based on row, row, row your boat and, and um, the championship race that I had come back from at the age of 19 was a crew race. Um, and so I immediately was tuned in to the theme and the message that this woman whose name uh, was the same name of my very first friend in high school and all these other things about the row, row, row your boat from one person talking about the three little birds and Bob Marley, which is one of the songs I used to sing over and over again when I was feeling very depressed and all these other things that really resonated with me. And there was just a certain point where all of a sudden everything just stopped. Everything just got still. And I just realized that, you know, that that there was a God who was literally telling me my story from long before I even knew he was there to let me know that I was never alone this whole time and that he knew everything about me. He knew everything that I had done, good thing, bad thing. It was like a comic cartoon book that you'd be flipping. And as you flip through, you see the character change different um, positions and from the beginning all the way to the end. And I just started crying I was overwhelmed with a feeling of joy and release and pain and comfort, but that same peace, the same peace that I strive to feel on a daily basis that comes from this higher power who I choose to call God. God is like my best friend. I realized in that moment that there really was a God that I could trust him and he was the only person who could keep me sober. He's the only person who could go everywhere I could go. I thought before that was just me and I knew I couldn't trust me but I knew I could always trust God. And this program, all of the steps from one all the way through 12, is just another opportunity for me to clear the path so I can hear the direction that he's giving me. It's like before I walked into the rooms, I had a fully charged battery, but I couldn't on my cell phone, but I couldn't turn it on. You know, I couldn't turn it on. So I'd be like, hello, who's there? There's nobody there. Well, I got to turn it on, you know, and, and through the program, it helped clear the path to help helped me to get honest with myself. It helped me to see that my problems are not that bad, um, that I did bad things and that those bad things do not define me. They define my behavior. But the person who I am today is the same person who picked up at 19, uh, picked up that drink at the age of 19 year old, 19 at the age of 19. But I am not somebody now who is so selfish and focused selfish and unfocused or focused selfish focused on myself um i am somebody who is i'd like to be strives every day um to be grateful um that tries not to create any new pain um and then just tries to be a really good person i i'm just very very grateful for this program there's so many things that I wish that I could share, but I know that everybody has to live this spiritual experience on their own. And sometimes it can be very painful, um, but I know that I don't have to do it alone. And um, through the rooms and the fellowship and podcasts like this, you know, I look forward to, and I'm so grateful for having an opportunity to carry this message. That's it. Awesome. Thank you so much, T. 
You're uh, welcome. Now's the uh, now's the time where we get to actually uh, thank you by identifying with uh, with the story that you just told and some of the experiences. Uh, I'd like to go first when you were talking about that that feeling, the electric parade you called it, um, <laughs> yeah. when you had, you know, you could actually feel like the alcohol. And I like a lot of people in the rooms, they'll say like, oh, that's romancing the drink. But I, I do the same thing when I tell my story, because when there's somebody new in the rooms, everyone that is an alcoholic, to my understanding of what the definition is, has had some sort of electric parade feeling that they can go back to. And when they feel like it's that ultimate release. And now that I have some time in the rooms and knowing what it is, I can tell you that, uh, you know, some of that feeling, you might feel this right now after I speak and tell my story, I feel something extremely close to that, if not even better, because I have my higher power along with me. And that, um, carrying the message that allows that, you know, and just that, that experience, you know, a lot of my friends would stop drinking um, when they had the feeling that they weren't, you know, in control when they felt tipsy and that never made sense to me, you know, and it took me quite some time to realize that that's because I'm an alcoholic and I actually am the opposite when it comes to alcohol um, as people that don't have that. You also spoke a little bit about uh, changing your goals. Um, yeah. And it's uh, I, I also didn't realize that, you know, a lot of people, instead of changing their drinking habits, you know, I would also set my goals of, uh, you know, originally in my career that was so important to me from, you know, college straight on through to the same point of, you know, you sounded really career and goal oriented. And I made a conscious effort to, instead of move to the next job, which would, would probably have helped me career wise, I just decided to plant my roots and just kind of give up and just, just sit and not develop in a way that would actually help me years down the line. Um, and I did, I did change my habits because I'm like, okay, well, I, <laughs> I'm fine. My goals now are exactly what I have today. I don't need to grow. And you always have to have to grow. And I didn't realize that till I came into the rooms. And the the other thing that I really liked that you you spoke on was um, the the honest prayer that you had, which uh, honesty is a principle that takes a while to actually get Uh, a while, meaning you know, actually hours of work put in because the two years time you have, I can tell you there's people that probably have 10, 15 years sobriety that don't speak as eloquently as you because you've gone through the book and continue to work uh, with newcomers. And I know uh, about your story that you also, um, and I, I know you didn't touch on, maybe it's because you, you didn't, uh, just the, the humbleness of you, but also going into rehabs and kind of working with them. Um, yeah. And that's very important. Uh, I know for me when I've done it in the past and I'm sure it's helped your program to be able to use that, you know, to, uh, to kind of reach out to more people. So I, I definitely appreciate all you do. Uh, Dennis, you want to identify with T? Sure. Thanks. Um, uh, first, uh, Thanks, T, for taking your 
time out of your busy schedule to share your story with us. I appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, I think uh, one of the things that really stood out to me listening to your story is how much we don't have in common. You know, like you come from a completely different background, different educational or whatever. But it just goes to show that like how our disease doesn't discriminate, you know, like it doesn't matter who you are, where you were born, whatever, that yeah. it can get you. Um, and in that sense, there are things that I did relate to in that, you know, the the emotion, the pain, the, the, the sense of feelings that we go through, through the downfall and the coming back up are all universal. Um, one thing that stood out to me was when you talked about wanting to like fit in with that that crowd that was having a good time and partying or whatever and that's what kind of initiated you to get uh go to that party and take the drink and and give into the cheering on of it and stuff you know I when I first started when I was younger like you know I always kind of felt that sense of looking for that place where I belong that group that I belonged in you know it always seemed like everyone had that that group that click that they were in that they all like were having a good time and stuff and I kind of felt on the outside of it and then whenever I started uh drinking and using and hanging out with you know the quote-unquote bad kids or the rebel kids you know at school and stuff like that I kind of felt that same sense of belonging um so I did everything that they did and more in some cases and whatnot um, I also remember that same feeling later on in life after I had quit drinking because I quit before I ever came into the room. So in that period where I was, you know, I quit drinking and using drugs or whatever, and I didn't know what to do with my life. And like I felt lost, I f again, felt like I didn't belong somewhere and didn't know what to do. And then I came into the rooms and I kind of had that same release and feeling that you talked about where I found a place where I belong and I found a, yeah. you know, a way out of, of the life that I had lived before. Um, again, I, I just want to add in a, you know, the audience, she won't tell you this or whatever, but early on in her recovery, T got a commitment to take a meeting to a rehabilitation center that she does, I believe, bi-weekly or whatever. And in her doing that, she has invited me a couple of times to go with her. And, you know, I think that has been a big part of my recovery too, doing like 12-step service work and stuff like that. I probably wouldn't have done, like gone and do that kind of stuff if it wasn't for you, T. Huh. Um, so I appreciate that. I think uh, in your growth and your spirituality and your presence in the rooms and stuff, you can see how you work in your program definitely rubs off on other people. And I think it's a very good thing. So thanks for sharing. Thanks, Dennis. Awesome. James, you're up. Oh, thank you, Mike. Uh, thank you, T. It's always really great to hear your story. I've heard it a few times and I, I've been blessed to live a lot of it with you. Um, one thing I love hearing you talk about is when you had that 
that spiritual experience uh, when you were with your uh, your pigeon sisters in West Palm Beach. I remember when you came back uh, to the hotel and you were trying to describe it, and <laughs> and and you just you just you were crying and you were so happy. You're like, there is a God. This it's it's all making sense now. I don't know what to do now, but you know I've got and. The funny thing is, I, I had gone through a spiritual experience just like that. I don't know if it was a month before or a couple of weeks before. You probably know better than me. I described it um, in my last uh, episode of the podcast, and it is an indescribable feeling. Yeah. You just—it's like the whole universe just makes sense all at once, and you're completely shifted mm-hmm. and. You know, I was in and out of the rooms for 14 years, and I never had anything like that. But if, I never really worked the steps as good as I should. I didn't follow the absolute perfect path. I guess there's an absolute perfect path, but I didn't thoroughly follow the path, as the book says. Anyways, when I had that spiritual experience, I was amazed that you had it. So soon after you started the rooms, started the steps, like, I was like, really? She just started a month ago. <laughs> and I was just like, that's amazing. It's like God saw that we were married and he's like, all right, let me just be quick on this one. And and you've been changed ever since, too. So I just think that is so cool. Like, how cool is God, you know? Yeah. You know? Yeah. So it's just been wonderful watching you grow. And another thing that I've gotten to see is like all the women you've helped. There must be in the two years you've been sober, you've helped, I think, 14 sponsees. Am I right? Thereabouts. Maybe not quite that many. I've definitely worked with a lot of women. Yes. And you, you absolutely are on top of it uh you'll let me know like oh i i can't do this today because i need to go work with my sponsee and it seems like every other day you're working with a sponsee so uh just you know kudos to you uh you're you're just an amazing woman i'm very lucky thank you so much for taking the time out of your day oh thank you james uh t i want to kind of put you on the spot just for 60 seconds here um, and I didn't tell you we were going to do this ahead of time. I just, I know there are probably people that are listening right now trying to identify and they probably did with, with what you said. Can you talk for, for just about a minute to that person that maybe never has gone to their first meeting, um, and kind of give them some advice since, since we've all been there, but from your point of view, um, just uh. advice before they step into their first meeting. Or if they're thinking if they should go. Well, I I would say that I don't know that anybody could have told me what to do. Um, but if I was thinking about going to a meeting, then I probably needed to be there. I don't think that uh, people who care about me genuinely, and there's a track record of people who care about me who would lead me astray. So... I just really had to be very honest with myself that I believed I had a problem. And if I didn't believe I had a problem, I had to be willing to consider that there was a problem. And then I had to be open 
to any potential solution, you know, which meant that I had to do that which I thought that I could not do. I had to walk in what I thought was a dark room to get to the light. I really just had to take it one step at a time, one minute at a time, um, one thought at a time until things started to clear. And, um, you know, that just came from being honest, open and willing. That's the how that I say. And I do know for me, you know, one of the first couple of meetings I went to, I went to a meeting that had readings and in the reading, they handed out the promises, which are the ninth step promises. And they mirror the steps one through nine, but they focus on where um, somebody who's in recovery would start to experiences really uh, starting to be a part of life again. And I remember reading those promises and realizing that God will always and always keeps all of his promises to me. And, you know, I, I just follow directions, you know, a promise is a promise. And from day one, when I walked into the rooms, everything that anybody in the literature um, read to me, told me the people who had good sobriety, everything that they did, they got the outcome that they had planned for. And if that was any kind of promise or guarantee, I followed exactly what they did. And if I had questions, I had questions. I just have to be honest, open and willing. I think that was more than a minute. No, (laughs) it might have been two and a half, but I wasn't counting. Thank you. But thank you so much for sharing your experience, strength and hope with us, T, and uh, and taking time out of your day. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And a promise is a promise. Absolutely. We will be back next Thursday with a special guest sharing their experience, strength and hope with us as well on episode six. And we are a defective characters in closing. Entirely ready to have all these character defects removed. And remember, as he said, a promise is a promise. And we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye.